Good, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, I just, I just thank you that uh, you desire to speak to your church, Lord. And as we get started in your word today, Lord, we, we just want to say to you, it's our desire to hear you speak. And so, God, we ask that, that um, by your Holy Spirit, you just touch our hearts this morning, that you'd give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know you better, that uh, we might recognize um, how you're at work in the world and how you're at work in our lives and, and how we may partner with you today, Lord. And, uh, and so, God, we, we thank you for this study that we started last week in the book of Esther. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in Esther chapter 3. We're going to look at chapter 3 and 4 this morning. Um, and so, back in, in chapters 1 and 2, we, we saw the... The queen of Babylon rem- removed from her throne. And in, in chapter 2, uh, this young Jewish girl, Esther, was chosen to become the next uh, queen of Persia. And uh, as far as we know, in between chapters 2 and 3, things have been peaceful in Susa for four years, actually. Four years have passed now as we come to chapter 3. Um, and Esther has been there as queen. During that time, just at the end of chapter 2, we saw that there was a plot against the king's life. But Mordecai, Esther's uh, cousin, her stepfather, had caught wind of uh, those who were planning the king's assassination. And the plan was thwarted. And Mordecai continued to serve at the king's gate in some sort of political role as a judge in the community or whatever it was. And so things have been... As far as we know, relatively peaceful. And it's at this point where we're going to meet the villain of our story. Ooh. His name was Haman. And really, I would call him the Hitler of the Old Testament. This is the man, okay? Um, each year in, in Jewish culture, when the Feast of Purim comes, in their synagogues, they will stop and they will read the story of Esther and, and the book and of Esther and their habit is this, that when the story is read, every time the name of Haman is mentioned, all, all the adults and the children st- stamp their feet, and they hiss, and they boo, and they'll spit, and they'll curse, and they'll say, may his name be blotted out forever. This is, this is the Hitler of the Old Testament. And they, they, they get dramatic with it, and they have fun with it, but at the same time, you know, to the Jew, Haman really, pers- yeah, that's right, there it is. I was waiting for it. He personifies every person who's ever tried to exterminate the Jewish, the Jewish people. And so let's meet this villain, okay? Chapter 3 here. Here we go. After these things, King Ahasuerus, that is Xerxes, promoted Haman the Agagite. I love it. You guys are awesome. You feel free to do that, the whole message. Yeah, don't spit, okay? Person in front of you will not appreciate that. (laughs) The son of Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. I know. 
For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Haman the Agagite. That's right. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And to get an understanding of what is happening here in this story, we have to look a little bit back at the Amalekites. Uh, in Exodus, well actually throughout the Old Testament, you will see that when the Amalekites are mentioned, they are a people with whom the Lord actually said this, I am angry with this people forever. Uh, Haman was of the royal family, Agag, a, a, a descendant of the king of these people. Now to understand why Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin and stepfather, would refuse to bow down or pay homage to this man, we need to recall a little bit of the history. We've got to go back into the book of Genesis and recall where this clan, this group of people came from. Amalek was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. In the scripture, Esau is a type, he is a picture of the man of the flesh. A man who is given over to the desires of his flesh, to fleshly purposes. When you think about Jacob and Esau, what the scripture tells us, it says that they were twins and in the womb, what happened between them? They wrestled. The man of the flesh and the man of the spirit. Uh, the man of flesh versus the man of the spirit. When Esau was a young man, we know that he sold his inheritance for a bowl of stew. Uh, and he, so he's this picture of a man who lived for fleshly purposes. And, and God set him aside. Though he was the firstborn, he was set aside so that Jacob would receive the inheritance. Amalek comes from the line of Esau. And so he too is a picture of a fleshly man. He is the picture of a man who is given, given over to ungodly passions, to the lusts and the desires of the flesh. In Exodus, uh, and we you know, just had our sermon series there, in the book of Exodus, after the children of Israel had been delivered by God, they had been released from the power of Pharaoh, they had been sheltered by the blood of the lamb, redeemed by the power of God, led triumphantly through uh, the Red Sea into the Sinai Desert. I would say taken under the care of Jehovah himself. Uh, they came to the place of Mara where there was bitter water and God sweetened it so they could drink it. He refreshed them at the shade and Elim. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In Exodus chapter 17, they came to a place called Horeb. And there at Horeb, they complained against the Lord because there was no water to drink. And you recall the story that God commanded Moses to go to a, a rock and he was to strike the rock and the rock would split open and, live, and water would flow from this rock and the people would be saved at Horeb. The New Testament, and so all, all that happened, Moses struck the rock, it split, water came out, and the people drank in the desert. In the New Testament, we're told that that rock is a picture of Jesus, that the rock is Christ, who, who gave him himself for us, and from Jesus comes living water. 
And so there are the children of Israel. They're, they're in the desert. They've received, so to speak, living water through Christ Jesus. And they're unprovoked. What God has just provided for them, the Amalekites attacked them in the desert. And Amalek fought with Israel. It's a picture of this for us that our flesh and the lusts of the flesh will always attack the work of the Spirit in our lives. You know that. I know that. We live with that reality every day. Our flesh is a tireless and hateful enemy that wants to suppress the work of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, he wants to, the flesh wants to rob us as a child of God of God's blessing, wants to uh, rob us of the work of the Holy Spirit, wants to take that which is rightfully ours in Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, we read this in verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, we need to learn to walk in the spirit. Not by the desires of the flesh. And you and I know that as we serve Jesus, as we try to live for Jesus, it's an endless battle. Every day, hour by hour, minute by minute it seems at times, to walk in the spirit and to walk after the things of God. And so Amalek, the man of the flesh, attacked Israel, the man of the spirit. And back in Exodus chapter 17, we, we saw that the only way that Israel found victory over Amalek is when Moses stood on the hill in the midst above the battle and he raised the staff of God in his hands over the people of Israel. And as long as Moses had his arms raised in the air and the staff was held high, the children of Israel had victory over Amalek. But when his arms grew tired, Exodus 17 tells us, and the staff began to come down, Amalek would begin to assert his will against the people of God. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, and a man by the name of Hur got a stone, and they set it underneath Moses, and he sat beside it, and they stood to his right and to his left, and they held his arms so that the staff of God would remain in the air and the children of Israel uh, defeated the armies of Amalek. But as that battle raged and as it happened and as Moses sat on the hillside with Aaron and Hur to his right and his left and his arms held in the air, the children of Israel would look up at that hill and they would see the silhouette of these men standing there or sitting there. And it's this picture for us. It's a foreshadow of Jesus Christ who hung on a cross with his arms spread wide with a man to his right and to his, his left. And the picture is this. The only way, here, here's the picture and here's one, one of the keys to this text is that the only way to have victory over the flesh is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it was after that battle in the desert against the Amalekites between Israel and Amalekites that the Lord said this in Exodus 17 verse 14. I will utterly block out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I would say this. If it could, our flesh would kill the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
If it could, Amalek, if he could, Amalek would kill Israel. If he could, the flesh would dethrone the Lord in our lives. If he could, he would try to kill the Lord and reign in his place. And when we take our eyes off the cross, when we fail to obey the word of God, we expose ourselves to the dangerous power of the flesh. We need to always keep our focus on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. History went on and the children of Israel wandered through the desert for their 40 years. They came into the, the land of Canaan and they conquered it and the time of the judges happened and then their first king was set on the throne of Israel. His name was Saul. And God gave Saul a mission. He commanded Saul this, now go and strike Amalek. The king is in his place. He has his throne amongst the people and the Lord says, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, 1 Samuel 15, 3. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. The Lord says, wipe them out. I've set myself against him and take him off the face of the earth. Do not spare them. We know from the story of Saul, what did he do? He spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites. He failed to wipe out the royal family. Not only did Agag live until Samuel the prophet killed him, but there obviously was an infant who lived as well. And, and had Saul been true to God and obedient to God's word, Haman would not have appeared on the scene. Come on, boo. Haman... <laughs> would not have appeared on the scene some 600 years later. The lesson is this. Sin cannot be allowed to live in your life. You cannot show your flesh any mercy. You know, there's a saying I like, murder the flesh. Murder the desires of the flesh. You know, I think, Saul, I wonder what he thought. You know, it's just one Amalekite. How much damage can one Amalekite do? That must have been his reasoning. And Saul didn't kill the Amalekite king. It was his downfall, actually. You know that on the day that Saul was killed, he was in a battle with the Philistines, and they struck him with arrows. And as he lay on Mount Gilboa dying... He made the choice to fall on his own spirit to try and speed up the process so that they wouldn't come and have their way with him once they arrived. So he fell on his spear. And as he lay on Mount Gilboa, dying, bleeding out, the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that guess who happened to be there? An Amalekite. And Saul called the Amalekite over and he said to him, strike me down, kill me now before the Philistines uh, come. And so the Amalekite finished him off. It's, it's a tragic story. In the scripture, I find the story of Saul one of the most tragic stories. Uh, see, that which he didn't kill when he was supposed to eventually killed him. He did not murder the man of the flesh, but he let 
him live and it became his undoing in his death. And you know the reality for us is this. We cannot be soft when it comes to dealing with our sin. Sin cannot live. You can't go, well, I'll deal with this, all these sins, but I'll let this one live. It's just one little sin. How big of a problem can it be? The answer is this. It will be your undoing if you let it live. Kill the flesh. Murder the flesh. In the early days of Israel's captivity when they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar, we read in the book of Daniel that the Lord raised up young Israelite men into positions of authority and power within Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. In fact, Daniel rose to power. He became the second in command in all of Babylon, second only to Nebuchadnezzar. I would say he was, you know, sort of a prime minister. And so this was kind of a, a, a common practice, especially in such massive empires. And we read about Daniel, and we know that as a prime minister, he was a righteous man, a, a prophet of God. Seventy years later, in the time of Ahasuerus, he is well appointed amongst his government, one man, second only to him, who was a sort of prime minister amongst the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, Haman the Agagite. The, the man of the flesh had once again, I would say, weaseled his way to the front. Manipulated his way to the top as the man of the flesh is always trying to do. Get to the front. And the king had decreed this. All should bow to Haman. Interesting picture. You know, bowing to the flesh. All should bow uh, to Haman. And we read here that everyone did bow to Haman except for one man, Mordecai. Now why did Mordecai refuse to bow to Haman? And I think the answer is this, that, Haman, ha, uh, that Mordecai knew that Haman was an Agagite, an Amalekite. The Lord had declared war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So, so how could Mordecai, as a follower of the living God, then show homage and, and bow the knee to an eternal enemy of the people of God, an enemy of the Lord, an enemy of the Jewish people? And, and right here, I mean, you got to see this. This is Mordecai at his best. I don't know what else to say. This wasn't a personal quarrel with another man. It was his declaration that in my life, I recognize God has enemies and I stand with God against his enemies. It was a statement that he would not make the same mistake that Saul made. He would not bow to the man of the flesh. He would not simply go with the crowd. He would not go with the flow, but he would stand with God against such things. Let's check out verse three. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all Jews. 
the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Mordecai had kept quiet about being a Jew. We, we saw that in the text that we looked at last week. He'd even instructed his daughter Esther that when you go to the palace, you just keep it on the, on the down low that you're of Jewish descent. Keep that information to yourself. So when the day comes in Mordecai's question, how come you won't bow down to Haman? It's at this point where it became time to share his nationality, to share his family heritage, to share that he was counted amongst those who served the living God. It was because he was a Jew that he would not bow down to an Amalekite. Now when, when you read the story, it seems like... Um, Mordecai had somehow escaped Haman's notice. You know, imagine more, uh, Haman coming out of the palace and through the king's gate and there's plenty of people around and people thronging to s- see him and different government officials and they would bow down. And, and somewhere in the shadows, Mordecai stood and just refused to bow down. And he had escaped Haman's notice until the king's servant, servants pointed out that he was refusing to bow. And so Haman, we read here, disdained not just to kill Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. And so what can you say about this man's character? I don't know. You know, essentially he's the prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire, 127 provinces, a kingdom that stretches from India to Ethiopia. He's got everything, and one little Jew won't bow down to him, and so he's so incensed that simply destroying Mordecai isn't enough. He has to kill all Jews. Uh, not, not just the Jews in the city of Susa. He would begin to plan for a genocide of the Jewish people, as we're going to read here. He's going to destroy them all if he has his way. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast the Pur. That is... They cast lots before Haman day after day. And they cast in it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So here's Haman. He's a superstitious man. Uh, he has to consult, I don't know. I, I, I think the idea is mediums, spiritists, the stars. He believed in lucky days and unlucky days. And so in his steps to determine when he would destroy the Jews, he has some, I don't know, of the court astrologers begin to cast lots to determine what would be the day of their destruction. And it was done privately. He wanted to ensure that he had, ensure that he had the support of his gods before he approached the king. And the 12th month was selected, which, I mean, really, when you think about it, it's, it's pretty good because he started here in the first month and this gave 12 months for him to, to plan and to execute his plan. But I would say this, it was also from the Lord because it also gave the Jewish people, specifically Esther and Mordecai, 12 months to counteract the plan. You know, in Proverbs 16, verse 33, it says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from the Lord. And so he, he had evil purposes, but God worked even in that to help give time for his people to prepare. I, I would say Haman probably wanted to act really quickly and catch the Jewish people off guard 
but the lot was count, cast for the 12th month, and so that's when he planned this genocide. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Okay, yeah, kind of some half-truths there, right? I mean, yes, the laws of the Jews were different, but he only had one man that we read about refusing to bow to him. So notice, you know, Haman only shares with the king the minimal amount of information. He doesn't even mention the group of people that he's referring to. Verse 9. If it please the king... Let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from, the hand, from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do with them as it seems good to you. Interesting, the uh, Greek historian, I don't know if I'll say this right, Herodotus records that the annual income for the Medo-Persian Empire was 15,000 talents of silver. Ahasuerus, you know, we know just with, with context and background studies, had been involved in a, a very costly war against the Greeks. We talked about this last week. That both his father had failed in two attempts to conquer uh, the Greeks. And he had got his armies together and had been involved in an extremely costly battle against the Greeks. The estimates are that two million people died from the Medo-Persian Empire in his battle against them. Kingdom revenues were down. It was a tough time, I would say. And so to stimulate... The economy, why not genocide? 10,000 talents of silver. He's, he's offering two-thirds uh, two of a year's worth of the entire kingdom's income that he will personally play into the royal treasuries to see that his plan for the Jewish genocide, a final solution, is completed. I mean, it's staggering if you consider what Haman was offering. You read in the footnote of your, of your Bible that one talent of silver weighed 75 pounds. He offered to pay 10,000 talents of silver. That, that's 750,000 pounds of silver. You know, based on, you know, Canadian market this week, $21 an ounce. That's a quarter of a billion dollars. $250 million that Haman was offering to see that this plan be, uh, this, that's staggering. You know, I would say, I, I'm not a conspiracy guy. Yeah, if you chat with me. But holy smokes, eh? $250 million to see this plan take place. Haman was willing to, to spend his personal fortune for genocide. Not a conspiracy theory guy, but let me say this. Back up for a moment. 
There is one conspiracy theory that I believe in. It has an instigator too. He's a serpent. Old Slewfoot. Satan. And Haman was a puppet in the devil's hand. You know, I would say the devil, he, he, he wanted to destroy any chance of the ultimate deliverer, the Lord Jesus, ever coming. Let's wipe these people out. He wanted to make void the promises of God. And that is still his desire. And a proud man, Haman, was his puppet. Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers were, went out hurriedly by order to the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. I mean, what can you say? This is a demonic plan. It's a final solution for the Jewish problem in Persia. Uh, yeah, it's demonic. It's, it's anti-Semitism. And, and it was this evil man setting himself up against that which God has said is the apple of his eye, the children of Israel. I would say this, you know, no Christian should ever have any part in anything anti-Semitic. You know, throughout history, there has been a concerted effort to destroy God's people. Pharaoh tried to annihilate them in Egypt. He took their baby boys and he threw them in the river. Haman tried to annihilate them in Persia. Herod tried to annihilate them in the days of Christ. Hitler tried to annihilate them in the last century. There's many stories throughout history, plans against the children of Israel. You know, today we can see that much of the Middle East is set against the people of Israel. Today, if they, they could, they would drive them into the sea. Today, we look around the world and we see that anti-Semitism is on a significant rise within our world. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus comes again, oh, come Lord Jesus, when he comes, he will sit on a throne in Jerusalem and from there he will rule over the world. But before he comes, Satan will once again attempt to destroy the place from which Christ will rule. You know, when you consider the history of the Jewish people, the Bible, uh, extra biblical, it's, it's a fascinating study. You know, there's been so many attempts to destroy and repeatedly, God has worked with miraculous power to preserve these couriers were sent throughout the Persian Empire. And, and I mean, the picture is crazy. The decree was issued in Susa. The whole city is thrown into confusion. 
And the king and Haman sit down to have a few drinks. Millions will die. You know, they don't care that millions are going to be affected. They're cold and they're callous and they're uncaring and they're unconcerned about the plight of millions of people. Estimates were 15 million Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire. Now little did Haman know that the Lord was standing in the shadows watching over that which is, is his own. That's what his word says. That he stands in the shadows and he watches over those who belong to him. Little did he know that God had already made provision for this evil plan. In his providence, in his divine control over history, he had placed a little Jewish girl in the harem of the king of Persia. And he had chosen her. The blessing of God was upon her. And she had become the queen of Persia. She was there in Susa in the palace, the wife of the king. God's provision to protect his people. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can have a spirit of Haman, I would say. We forget that there's a world around us that's been sentenced to death because of sin. And we sit and we eat and we drink and we forget about the lost. And we're uncaring unconcerned, not worried about a plight of those who will spend an eternity apart from a savior. And we need to see that in this story and not have a heart like that, but, but to have a, a heart for the lost and those who don't know Jesus and those who are downtrodden and to tell them about good news. We come to chapter four and we read this. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes, this appearance that, and actions that Mordecai takes, are, it's those of a person who's showing great grief. Those of a person who is uh, repenting, not afraid, not ashamed to be seen by others in the midst of the, even willing to go to the king's gate to take extreme measures to show his grief on his sentence of death, to, show extreme, to take extreme measures to show uh, um, his repentance. You know, there's that old saying, uh, you, you've heard it, if you float around church, you, you've heard it. It's that great quote from that British politician, Edmund Burke. All that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. You know, as you read this story, you might think, well, you know, it was only a number of years beforehand that Cyrus gave the Jews permission to return to their homeland. It, it was only uh, 17 years earlier that, that Cyrus had said, 
Anybody who wants can go back to the land of Israel and you can rebuild your temple. And when you read about it in your Bible, you'll find that 60,000 Jewish people got up and went back to Jerusalem to rebuild uh, the temple. But many of them stayed in, in the lands where they had made a home, where they were raising their children, where they had uh, made their life. And you think, well, why, if they just would have returned to Israel, they would have been safe. But uh-uh, no. Because even there was the reach of the empire of King Ahasuerus. That land of Canaan was one of his provinces. It wasn't safe even there. Uh, one of the big themes of the book of Esther is, uh, is the providence of God. And, and this little book is in our, in our Bibles to, to teach us that if you are a child of God, then God will never forget you. What a wonderful thing. He'll, he'll never forget you. He's engraved you on the palm of his hand. And understandably, there, w- there was great mourning, there was weeping, there was wailing, Uh, There was fasting throughout the provinces of Persia uh, concerning this decree to annihilate the Jews. Interesting that there's no mention that they prayed. I I, I don't know if we should assume that prayer happened or if we should assume that it didn't happen. I'm not not totally sure. I don't know if uh, a lack of prayer reveals to us the temperature gauge of what was happening spiritually with these people. Uh, that they were out of shape spiritually, but we're not told that they prayed. Now check out verse four. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. New clothes from the queen. Uh, Esther sends them to Mordecai. Interested. Mordecai was not interested in a cover-up. He and his people had received a death sentence. Uh, covering it up with a new set of clothes was just going to, I don't know, nothing more than self-deception and, and self-denial, to a form of denial to do such a thing. You know, think about the Queen Esther. Here she is. Life's good for her. She's living in the palace. Life's pretty good. And rather than facing reality, she says, oh, Mordecai, here's some clothes. Cover up. And there's an important application here. You know, and I, I, I don't think it's a comfortable application this morning. But here it is. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior and you've never surrendered your life to him, you need to know this. There's a death sentence on your life. That, that's a sobering thing. There is a death sentence on your life. The word of God declares that you have been sentenced to death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Because of sin, you have fallen short of the glory of God and the Bible says that the wages of sin is death you've been sentenced to death. And you know, I could do flowery things today and try to send you a nice set of clothes to pretty up your situation. Here, just put this on. Tell you, come to church, you'll be okay. 
But just be a good person. You'll be okay. Uh, just get religious, you know, practice religion in your life. You'll be okay. But those things are just coverings. Like the clothes that Esther sent to Mordecai. It's just, we'll cover it up. It will not remove the fact that before God, you are guilty of sin and that you've received a sentence of death. The wage for your sin. The prophet Joel said this. It's important that you hear this heart of God towards you in the midst of your death sentence. Joel said, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents in sending disaster. You know, I would say this. Pe- people try to deal with sin in all sorts of different ways, covering up. But when it comes to dealing with sin, a cover-up does not work. Rather, the Bible says this. You have to be born again. There has to be a change in your heart not on the outside. There, there has to be a new nature uh, in, inside of you. You must receive life through Jesus Christ. We all have a sinful nature and the Bible says the sinful man will not inherit eternal life. You have to come to Jesus. You know what Jesus said? He said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You have to trust Jesus with your life. And the word of God declares that he took your place and paid the penalty of your death. He paid the penalty for your sin. And all you have to do is by faith accept the work that he did for you. In repentance, turn away from your sin and in faith, turn to Jesus Christ. Not clothes of religion, not clothes of good works, not clothes of attending church. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to clothe you. And it happens when you surrender your life to him. That is the only way you can stand before God. And Mordecai, he didn't want to cover up He didn't want to play games. He wanted to get to the heart of the matter. And my friends, I would say to you this. The Lord doesn't play games either. Your death sentence is real. You can't cover up. Don't pretend. You have to repent of sin. But God loves you. God loves you. His word tells us that that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And that's his gift, eternal life, and it's only found in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus gave everything for us, didn't he? And he asked that we give our lives and return to him. Verse five says, Then Esther called, one of the king's eunuchs 
who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. So Esther realized here, she comes to a realization, there's, there's some, this is not a light situation. Something's going on here that I don't understand. I need to know what's going on. Find out for me. Verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg for his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the peoples of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except, to the, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. As for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Sounds like a great marriage. <laughs> Hasn't seen her husband for 30 days. This was the law of the Medes and the Persians. It was how uh, their kingdom functioned. You could not just come into the king's presence. And I would say this, Esther's not making excuses. She's just reminding Mordecai, do you understand the reality that's in front of me here? I'm not allowed to come before the king. I only get to come when I'm called. And there's only one way I live should I go into his presence without being called. He will extend the golden scepter and, and grant me mercy to allow me to live. And so if she came on her own, you know, she could be executed for approaching the king without invitation. It's not, yeah. Weird, but this is how the laws of the Medes and the Persians functioned. And the king could not change such laws. And I would say that, you know, this was one of the ways in, in, in which the empire functioned so that the king could delegate to his governors and his leaders and say, go to them with your problems. And I'll deal with them. And it, it was a form of how their government functioned. Makes me think this, though, that we should be thankful because we serve the king of kings. And my king welcomes me into his court anytime. Uh, my king, our king said, come to me. If you're burdened and heavy laden, you come to me and I'll give you rest. You know, our, our king said, abide in me. And if my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and I'll give it. That, that's my king. That's our king. He says, come to me. Come boldly to my throne of grace in your time of need. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That end of verse 14 is worth underlining. And who knows 
whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I, I think that's probably the most important verse right there in the whole book of Esther. Mordecai just shares with her realities. Okay, let's talk. Let's put it all on the table here, Esther. I know that you're reminding me that you might die should you go before the king without being summoned. But don't just think because you're the queen that you get, you know, directly to Pasco, go straight to jail, <laughs> get out of jail card free. You're not, you're not going to get the get out of jail card free. Remember Vashti? She was queen. She was disposed of based on the laws of the Medes and the Persians. In, in that kingdom, in that empire, when the king signed a decree, it could not be repealed. Uh, not even by him. If he said that all the Jews were to die, then all the Jews would die and Esther would be included in their number. She would not escape. Again, verse 14 says, For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I love that confidence in Mordecai. He says, God's going to act on our behalf. Deliverance will come, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yeah, I, I just love that. Mordecai says, look, even if you don't step out, even if you don't participate in the opportunity that God is placing before you, deliverance will come. But, but you'll miss out on the opportunity of getting to participate with God and what he's doing. And in the midst of that, you'll be destroyed, he says. It's interesting. Same thing really goes for you and I. If we decide we're not interested in the work of God, well, that's not going to stop God. I mean, should I be so arrogant to think that God needs me? He invites me to participate with him. But should I refuse him? It's not going to stop his purposes. He'll go on without me. He, he'll use someone else. He'll go about his business. But Mordecai says, Esther, but, but you'll, you'll perish. You'll die. And I think the same thing happens to us uh, when we refuse to participate with God. You know, maybe we don't die physically, but emotionally, spiritually, the joy of serving leaves our lives, the excitement of walking with God dries up, seems like there's blessing missing. And Mordecai says to her, you know, maybe God has made you the queen of Persia for such a time as this. You know, think about God and his providence. Uh, there are no accidents with God. There are no mistakes you might consider a situation that you've gone through recently or you're in the midst of right now. Maybe it's difficult. Maybe it caught you by surprise. Maybe you weren't ready for it. Maybe it wasn't your plan. But I would say this. God has you right where he needs to have you. God has you right now. Like, think about that. God has you right now where he wants to have you for such a time as this, for his sake, for the sake of his kingdom. And the question is, how is he asking you to participate with him in the midst of your situation? 
or your happenstance or whatever it is. Verse 15, wrap it up here. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow, what a godly woman. She puts herself forward to the purposes of God. If I perish, I perish. Verse 17 says, Mordecai went away and he did everything as Esther had ordered him. So if I go down, I go down. If I perish, I perished. I, you have to love the character of this young woman. She says, all right. If God has placed me here for such a time as this, then I'm going for it. I, this is two feet in. I, I'm jumping in. And you know, I, I, I think we can look at Esther and, and just those thoughts of such a time as this and, and, and say to ourselves this, what are we afraid of? In serving God, what could we possibly be afraid of? I mean, think about it. If we perish, we perish. Uh, Paul said, yeah, well, if I die, then, you know, I, I gain eternity. And I might ask you this morning as we close, what's holding you back from serving God in the way that he's prompting you right now? What's holding you back? You should trust him. Trust him. You can trust him. He's good. It, and it's awesome to participate with him, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray this morning. Murray and Beth, I'm gonna invite you guys to come to the front here. Do you guys stand with me as they're coming up? Father, this morning, we thank you for the providence of God. Thank you, Lord, that in your kingdom there are no accidents. You only have purposes and plans. And Lord, there's no accidents in our lives because you're at work. And so God, I pray with increasing maturity for each one of us, we would recognize that you have placed us for such a time as this. God, in all of history, you could have placed us anywhere. In thousands of years of world history, you could have placed us anywhere. But you placed us in Gibson's in 2015 for such a time as this to serve you and to serve your purposes. God, I pray that clearly we would see what you're wanting to do in and through our lives. And I pray, God, that like Esther, we would jump in two feet all the way and experience what you want to do. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray, God, that in our lives we would not be weak in the treatment of our flesh, but that we would be harsh, that we would murder it, that we would learn to walk in the spirit as we follow you, God. We pray, God, that we would not 
be weak in dealing with sin and let it live, but that we would cut it off. We pray, God, that for each one here, they would recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the work of the cross, apart from the blood which you said to redeem us, there is a death sentence over each of our lives. And so Jesus, this morning, we thank you for saving us. And Lord, I pray that we would truly be repentive of sin. That we would change our minds about sin. That we would turn from sin and turn to you, Jesus. And so God, again, we surrender our lives to you. Jesus, we ask you to forgive us our sins. Wash us in your blood. Take your place as the ruler in the throne of our lives, over our hearts. May we be born again and receive the new nature that is only found through Jesus Christ, I pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.